You could turn, oh, don't forget to get rid of the microphone. You could turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19, verses 8 to the end of the chapter. And I did not go on the interstate and hang out the window to take this picture. Google Earth took the picture for me. This will make sense at the end. As a way to segue into what on earth this passage is about, I want to tell you a story from my uh, Master at Arms A school at Lackland Air Force Base a long time ago, because I, I feel old, but I'm glad Mary Prunty and Beverly Willis aren't here or they would laugh at me when I said I feel old. But 20 years ago, I went at 18 years old and I went to uh, Master at Arms A school, the Navy's Military Police Academy school at Lackland. And after, before 9-11, the Navy's security forces rating only had, didn't have that many people, 1,500, 2,000 people, small number of people. And you could only go into security forces if you'd already been in the Navy for a long time and were probably an E-5 and maybe 10 or so years in, and then you could, you could cross over and get trained and be in the security forces. So it's a small group of people, everyone knew each other, and they're all like had the stupid young kid thing out of them, you know, late 20s, early 30s sort of, sort of thing. You know, they're not 18 anymore. But after 9-11, the Navy's like, we need tons of security forces people, because now the world's dangerous, right? And so now, what are they gonna do? They don't have enough, so now they open the, the rating to any 18 years old, you can come in and be security forces, right? So they're gonna try to go from like 2,000 to like 10,000 people, Navy-wide. So tons of people are now coming and flooding in, and I was one of them, to go through A school. And the problem was is that now you have all these classes full of new security forces recruit people, and they're all like 18 years old and really stupid. Not me, but other people were really stupid, you know? And so all a bunch of people are doing sorts of, all sorts of dumb things, and every class got to choose a motto, right? A motto for its class. Um, they would go on your class picture and everything. There was one floating around that I really liked. It was called, um, it, it said, in God we trust, all others we investigate, which I thought was pretty cute. Um, but they wouldn't, our instructors wouldn't let our class choose our motto because we were a terrible class. I mean, we had people that got kicked out for doing something, I don't know what. We had people who were cheating. It was a terrible, our class was really bad. And so our teachers, our instructors, um, two a senior chief and two chief petty officers, they, they would not let us choose our motto because they said we didn't deserve it. So what they said, they gave us a motto themselves. They said our class motto is going to be results, not excuses which isn't a really glowing recommendation from the, from the teachers uh, on our class. But I always remember that because we're supposed to be security forces and set the example, uh, be a model of good order and discipline and be sharp and everything. But we were just a bunch of clowns. So it wasn't a good class. There is a standard and then there was us. And it was really bad. But look at me now. So, so it worked out okay, for me at least. But there is a, a disconnect between what should be and what actually was. Results, not excuses. Which leads us to, as we look at our text today, we're going to see two, two episodes. And there's one key diagnostic marker that flows between both of them. And it helps us answer the question, how do we know if you claim to be a Christian, if you've repented of your sins and believed in Jesus alone for salvation, Jesus' message of forgiveness, reconciliation, adoption in his family, then you can be a Christian. If you're a Christian, how do you know if you're a fruitful Christian? How do you know if you are a fruitful Christian? 
And these two episodes from our text will help us answer this question. We'll be in Acts chapter 19, verses 8 to 41. And we're going to go through this in three steps. Um, the first, we're going to look at the two episodes, and we're just going to go through the text and briefly talk about what it says. Episode one, episode two, and then the third part of the sermon is we're going to talk about how do we know if we're fruitful Christians or not. So that's what we'll do. Go through the text and then talk about what we can learn from it as we think about our Christian faith. So let's pray. Dear Lord, we come to you today in Jesus' name. Lord, we ask that you pour out on us wisdom and understanding through your Holy Spirit so that as we're taught by you through the scriptures, our hearts and minds would be open to receive all that leads to life and holiness. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 8. Chapter 8. Uh, chapter 19, starting in verse 8. This is, what, this is what we read. Paul is in Ephesus. He's just spoken to this group of 12 really confused guys and gals. And they, they had like pieces of what John the Baptist had been preaching but didn't really know much else. Paul has told them the gospel. They've believed God has poured out the Holy Spirit on this group in a really visible way, accompanied by all the signs, the apostolic signs that happened at, at the main Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Paul is still in Ephesus. So in, in verse 8, we read this. Paul went to the synagogue and spoke confidently for the next three months. So for three months, he's able to go, they, they let him go to the synagogue and talk. He interacted with those present and offered convincing arguments concerning the nature of God's kingdom. So he's going there, he's telling them all about not just admit your sinner, believe in Jesus, pray the prayer. That might be in there too, but he's talking big picture like God is a king. God is making a better world than this place. And he wants you to join his family. He wants you to believe in Jesus as the Messiah you've been waiting for. Join the family so you can be with God in the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. God wants us to be in community. Jesus is forming that community. So why don't you come? This kingdom that's coming, this, this next step beyond. This isn't the, the end times are not the end. They're just the end of the beginning. Come with us so you can be there at the next step. Verse 9, some people had closed their minds. Their minds have been hardened. It's the same, same concept about Pharaoh hardening his heart. They don't want to listen. Close their minds. That's a deliberate closing. They're shutting down. It's like the metal shutters are going down. Not listening. They refused to believe and publicly slandered the way. The way is this shorthand for the Christian faith. We saw it in Acts chapter 9. So these are people, not everyone, but some people, they don't like it. They choose not to listen. They're like, I'm not listening. I'm not having it. I don't want it. And then they're publicly slandering the way. They're going around pushing back publicly against the Christian faith, lying about it. They're slandering, maliciously doing it. As a result, Paul left them, took the disciples with him, and continued his daily interactions in Tyrannus's lecture hall. This is not Tyrannus's lecture hall, but this is kind of like what it probably looked like. This is in Ephesus, um, and this is like a Zoom room, okay? It, it's a small little seating area where you can come and receive lectures from, uh, from, from teachers. And it was very, very common in Paul's day. All sorts of people had their own philosophical schools set up to explain reality, explain life. And so Paul has been 
he hasn't had success in the synagogue, so he has some sort of a kinship relationship with a guy named Tyrannus, which would be an awesome boy's name, by the way, and goes to, he has an invitation to leave the synagogue and go hang out with this guy and to have run of his school, his facility, perhaps like this, to um, explain the Christian faith to his students for, for a long time. Verse 10, this went on daily for two years so that everyone living in the province of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the Lord's word. People, uh, Ephesus is a really big city, and this, this little this school run by Tyrannus is sort of like a feeder vehicle where people would come to the school to hear lectures from Tyrannus about philosophy and, and everything. Paul would be there as well, and he would explain the Christian faith because he, I don't know if he's renting the facility or what the deal is, but he has use of it. And these people would come and attend school, as it were, and hear lectures, and then they would leave and go home. And people would come and go. And so in this way, the gospel's just going out all over the place. All over the province of Asia, people are hearing about the good news from Paul through this one hub in Ephesus. Verse 11, God was doing unusual miracles through Paul. All, not all, but some of the apostles could do miraculous signs and wonders. Paul was especially uh, um, gifted in this manner by the Holy Spirit. And he explains why in verse 12. Even the small towels and aprons that had touched his skin were taken to the sick, and their diseases were cured, and the evil spirits left them. This is a really, I'll explain about Ephesus in a minute, but this is a really um, huge, bustling city. Lots of people, lots of problems, um, and Paul is using his, his apostolic gift uh, in this way on purpose to break through the, the, the hard crust of Ephesian society to, to make a difference in people's lives, um, start changing their external circumstances as a sign of a spiritual dawn that is broken into the world heal their diseases, help them physically, then tell them about Jesus who can fix them spiritually and who's going to make everything better for all his people in the end. If you, I'm not going to talk about whether miracles can still happen today. There's a wonderful book by a man named Craig Keener, who's a, a, a conservative Christian theologian at Denver Seminary in, you guessed it, Denver. Uh, I mentioned the book before, just look up Miracles Today and you'll find the book by Craig Keener and he talks about this in a really responsible way. So if you're interested, you can read about that. But Paul is doing miracles and it's causing a stir. There were some Jews in verse 13 who traveled around throwing out evil spirits. This is a huge city full of a lot of weird people. If you've ever lived in a big city, you know there's just weird people in big cities. I don't know why, right? It just is. Some people love it, and they love to live like in the middle of downtown amongst all the weirdness, and they really love it. I'm not one of those people. I live in the teeming metropolis of Yelm, okay? I do not like going downtown anywhere. Even downtown Yelm is sometimes too crowded for me, and I want them to build the bypass road so I don't have to deal with it anymore. But... Um, uh, Big cities attract all sorts of weirdness. This is a city of at least a quarter million people. A lot of people. There's a huge port, a lot of Navy guys there, huge port, commercial traffic going in, going out. Some of Tim's, uh, Tim's longshoremen brothers are probably there at the port all the time, unionized and everything. Huge thing. 
And there's a Artemis is the is a is a is a is a fertility goddess who is is worshipped in Ephesus. She has a temple in Ephesus, a huge temple, and it's a huge tourist magnet for people all over the province to come to this temple, huge, big temple in Ephesus. And when people come to worship this fertility goddess, they bring their money because they need a place to stay. They need to stay at the Hampton Inn. They need to go to they need to go to Chick Fil A. They need to go to Wendy's. They 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 spend money when they travel. And so this is a huge city full of all kinds of weirdos and all, all kinds of strange stuff going on. Just like hang out in downtown Seattle, in the inner, inner city, and just hang out and see all the strange stuff going on. We see this all the time, and it's no different here. Some Jews are wandering around pretending to be exorcists and trying to cast demons out of people. I'm guessing for money. It doesn't say. But uh, th that's what they're doing. They're going around doing all of this. Verse 13. They tried to use the power of the name of the Lord Jesus against some people with evil spirits. They've heard about Jesus because Paul's been preaching so effectively and it's been pushed out through this hub for so long, for two years. So they know, even these guys know about Jesus. And so they try and use this name of Jesus as like a magic, like a rabbit's foot, right? Like a magic passcode um, to use with whatever it is they, all, they also do. They said, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, they, they've heard about him from Paul, I command you. So they're conducting exorcisms, claiming to be doing it in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches. I don't think they really know about Jesus firsthand. Well, I know they don't. They've just heard about him through Paul. The seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. The evil spirit replied, I know Jesus, and I'm familiar with Paul, but who are you? The person who had an evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them with such force that they ran out of that house naked and wounded. Sort of like an encounter from that movie, The Exorcist, only she attacks the guy instead of just being really creepy. Uh, she actually attacks the guy. So it's like they're trying to use a weapon they don't understand. They try and, they're pretending to be exorcists, probably for money is my guess. They're going around trying to use the name of this Jesus whom they've heard of but don't know anything about as this, uh, as this magic charm on people who are really demonically possessed and the demon knows Jesus. The demons fell down before Jesus in fear. They know Paul because he preaches about Jesus. But they don't know them. These are not Christians. He's laughing at them. The demon's laughing at them. And he attacks them. And they run away wounded and afraid and terrified. And if you're reading this and you think, you know, how silly. Stuff like that doesn't happen anymore. How do you know? There's all sorts of crazy people who do really crazy things. We don't think... There's a spiritual darkness at work in them. We think, person's crazy. Person needs to go to Western State. Person needs to be locked away and never let out. There, I work with a guy who worked at the Special Commitment Center on McNeil Island for almost 20 years. Do you have any idea the kind of people that are out there? It's a Special Commitment Center for the worst sexual predators ever. And they're kept on the island because they don't want them anywhere else, right? What are we supposed to do with these people? They're never going to get out, right? But what are we supposed to do with them? They put them on the island, and they just leave them there. 
you have any idea what's the, the, the depth of depravity that goes on that these people have done and are capable of? It's some awful stuff, right? And you think, oh, they're the, what's wrong with these people? There's medical issues, there's psychological issues. Maybe there's spiritual demonic issues as well. We just don't think in those categories. We think he's crazy, she's crazy. We don't think in categories of there could be some spiritual, real spiritual darkness influencing this behavior. And if you read the news, pay attention. It's not simply that people are crazy or people are evil. There are depths of evil and depths of behavior that boggle the mind that could be explained because he was raised by a mom who didn't care for him, but could also be also, not only, but also be explained by a, a supernatural, uh, an evil supernatural influence on people. People do some pretty awful things. So I'm certain stuff like this still happens today. We just don't think in those categories, so we don't call it that. Verse 17, this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus. So everyone's heard about it. It's infamous, right? This, is this crazy incident. It's gone viral. It's playing everywhere on Fox News 24-7. Everyone hears about it all the time. You're getting YouTube notifications to watch the video from all the people you follow, right? Everyone hears about this. And uh, everyone was seized with fear, and they held the name of the Lord Jesus in the highest regard. They're terrified. Who is this guy who Paul's preaching about? Who can do this to these, these, these strange people? What, what is this message Paul's preaching? This, this Jesus whom he says is God, who's come to rescue us. If he's this powerful, maybe we should learn more about this, this Jesus. Verse 18, and here's, pay attention to this. Many of those who had come to believe came, confessing their past practices. These are people who were believers. I don't know how long they've been believers, but they already were believers. But now, in light of this incident, now they're doing something very dramatic. This included a number of people who practiced sorcery, verse 19. They collected their sorcery texts and burned them publicly. The value of these materials was calculated at more than someone might make if they worked for 165 years worth a lot of money, these books and the, this collection. They're burning their association with past things that they were still hanging on to, still fiddling around with. Still, they kept it in their garage. They took it out of their living room and they put the stuff in their garage and they're like, I'm through with this. Well, why don't you get rid of it? Oh, put, I'll put it out here. You know, we've all done that before, right? With stuff we're gonna get rid of, but it doesn't really go away. It just goes to a darker corner of the house somewhere. Sure, we're getting rid of it, but now, they're actually getting rid of the thing. There's action that's happening, concrete action. In this way, verse 20, the Lord's word grew abundantly and strengthened powerfully, powerfully. That's episode one. What happens as a result of episode one? The faith is growing, it's impacting people's lives and that's impacting, in, to some extent, the culture around them and that's going to produce a problem, episode 2, verses 21 to 41, which won't take us long to go through. Once these things had come to an end, Paul, guided by the Spirit, decided to return to Jerusalem, taking a route that would carry him through the province of Macedonia and Achaia. He's in Turkey. I'm trying to do this backward. He's in Turkey. He wants to go to Jerusalem, which is down here, but he's going to swing through southern Greece first. So he's going to go over here, 
go through southern Greece and then catch a ship and go back to Jerusalem back there. So he's saying, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and make a few stops along the way. I'm going to go back. It's been after three years or so he's been there. He said, after I've been there, I must visit Rome as well. And here's a picture of Rome. He said, in verse 22, he sent two of his assistants, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia while he remained a while in the province of Asia. Sent the two guys ahead to Greece, and he is still hanging out in Ephesus, probably making plans to leave. Verse 23, at that time, a great disturbance erupted about the way. There's turmoil in Ephesus because of what Paul's been preaching. Their Christian faith is causing problems. There was a silversmith named Demetrius. He made silver models of Artemis's temple. This is Artemis. This is literally Artemis, literally figurines of Artemis. No one knows what on earth is going on with the way she looks. Some people say she's a fertility goddess, so if you worship her, your crops will prosper and things will go well for you. Some people think, um, some people think she's just a, a many-breasted figure symbolizing life, giving milk to her children sort of thing. Other people are like, no one knows what these things are, but this is Artemis. This is also known as Diana. She's the goddess who's worshipped in Ephesus, who is at the epicenter of this huge commercial trade, all the money from all the people coming to see the temple, coming to worship Artemis. Here she is in all her glory. Demetrius is a silversmith. He makes these figurines. He makes silver figurines of this to sell. It's a tourist trap, right? You, buy the, you, go to the, you go to the thing, you go to the gift shop, you buy the postcard, you buy the sweatshirt, you buy the, you buy the hat to give, your, to give your daughter or something, right? He's a, he works in the gift, he's the gift shop guy, okay? His business generated a lot of profit for the craftspeople. He called a meeting, verse 25, with these craftspeople and others working in related trades and said, this is what he said, friends, you know... You know that we make an easy living from this business. You don't have to do much. You have the figurines, you sell them to the people who go by. They come to you, they walk by, they're like, oh, I could take this to Sarah. And they buy it and go home to wherever they come from. Easy, it's easy money. And you see and hear that this Paul has convinced and misled a lot of people, not only in Ephesus, but also throughout most of the province of Asia. This guy is impacting our business. He says that gods made by human hands aren't really gods. And if enough people actually believe that, they're not going to buy. They're not going to buy these anymore. And if they don't buy these anymore, they're not going to make any money. And all the people who hawk all of this stuff aren't going to be making any money. A lot of people are going to be very upset, like Demetrius. Verse 27, this poses a danger. He says, not only by discrediting our trade, but also by completely dishonoring the temple of the great goddess Artemis. This is what the temple looked like. All that's left now is a pillar or two, so I'm not going to show you the pillar. But this is what it looked like. It looks like the Parthenon in Athens. Huge thing, very impressive. Impressive building. If this were built now, it would take 10 years and cost $800 billion. Um, but there it is. It's there, impressive. If the trade goes away because people aren't worshiping Artemis as much as they used to, say it goes down 10%, 15%, that's a lot of people who are going to lose a lot of money. The whole province of Asia, indeed the entire civilized world, worships her, but her splendor, Demetrius says, will soon be 
extinguished. Like we're going to lose our money. The tourist trade is going down. The more Paul stays here and preaches about Christianity, how Artemis isn't real, the gods you're following aren't real, the god of the Hebrew god, Yahweh, he's the one who's real and his eternal son, Jesus, he's the one who's come to rescue us. The more Paul preaches that, the less tourist trade there is because the demand's going down. Money talks. Money always talks. This is Demetrius is the first guy who can articulate and, and express the simmering frustration that so many people feel. Like a politician who can tap into everyone's anger and like harness it in a violent way, in a way that wouldn't have happened if the guy hadn't been charismatic and been able to draw people together. That's what Demetrius is, a born politician, draws people together, harnesses all their individual private frustration, and now they're really angry. Once they heard this, verse 28, they were beside themselves with anger, and they began to shout, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! The city was thrown into turmoil. A riot is beginning. They rushed into the theater, and this is literally the theater. This is it. This is the theater. This is where they're all rushing to congregate in a place to be loud and noisy. And when people are angry and they want to riot, they go to a central place where they can all congregate where there's space and yell and scream and be noticed, right? What, you, what, use, of, what use is a riot in a field in the middle of Rainier? It's no use. Go to a public place and be noticed and be seen. Get followers, get clicks on social media. To the theater, which is literally on your screen. They rushed as one into the theater. They seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions. They know that these guys are with Paul. They don't know where Paul's is. But they just grab these two guys. They grab them in some, some sort of pathetic tribunal thing. They all rush to the theater, to a public place on purpose. Paul wants to fix this. He has really good confidence in his, his ability to defuse the situation. Verse 30, Paul wanted to appear before the assembly, but the disciples wouldn't allow him, which is probably very smart. Even some of the officials of the province of Asia, who were Paul's friends, sent word to him, urging him not to risk going into the theater. Paul is not an anti-government populist, talking about how they want to destroy you. These are government officials in the province Roman officials who know Paul, who privately warn, they send him a text message, and they're like, don't come here, just stay away. Stay away and do not come here. He wouldn't have friends in the government if he were preaching a message of the government hates you and the government is the problem, right? I'm not saying he loves government, I'm saying that he's not an anti-government populist. He's a, he's a winsome guy, that's his ethos, that's his vibe. Otherwise, people in the Roman government wouldn't want to have anything to do with him. So they tell him, don't come here, which is probably good advice. Verse 32, meanwhile, the assembly was in a state of confusion, milling around, screaming. Some people don't even know why they're there. They're just there because young people love to smash and break things. And when there's a huge crowd, people just come from out of nowhere to smash and break things, because why not? Verse 33, the Jews sent Alexander to the front, and some of the crowd directed their words toward him. This is the stage. The, the front. So when it says they pushed Alexander to the front, they literally pushed him out here in full view of everyone in the stands so he could speak. The Jews know that Paul's a Jewish person and they're trying to distance themselves from the Christians 
Because the Jews who don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah were like, well, we're not with, that's not us. We're, we're, Paul is a different weirdo guy. We're not those guys. So the Jews are like pushing this poor Alexander guy, who I'm guessing probably isn't really that excited to get out there, saying, you tell them that we're not those people, right? Don't get mad at us. Uh, but when, verse 34, when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And at that point, I'm guessing Alexander sort of backed away pretty quickly and melted away into the crowd. This continued for about two hours. The city manager, verse 35, brought order to the crowd and, and basically talked them all down and sent them on their way. He said, people of Ephesus, doesn't everyone know that the city of Ephesus is guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image which fell from heaven? Artemis is probably, Artemis worship probably comes from a meteorite that fell to the ground that looked, when you look at it and squint a certain way, could look like a woman. Um, and so th this is where Artemis worship began from this, best I can tell, from some meteorite or rock that probably fell from heaven who they began worshiping. And if you think that's silly, such things happen all the time for people who are very pious and religiously motivated. There's, there's still all sorts of sightings going on about how people see Jesus or the Virgin Mary in tortillas and stuff like that. Um, I had a conversation with someone who asked whether, my opinion on that actually two weeks ago um, of a recent sighting that occurred on, um, I think it was a Good Friday. So stuff like this is not weird. It still happens today. Um, verse 36, therefore, since these facts are undeniable, Calm down and don't be reckless. The men you brought here have neither robbed the temple nor slandered our goddess. Paul does not go around saying, Diana's a loser, Diana's fake, Artemis is fake, you're all deceived. He says that, but he doesn't say it in a nasty way. Even the city clerk, who doesn't care one way or another, he just happens to be an administrator, even he admits these guys have not slandered. Artemis. They have not slandered our goddess. They know that he doesn't agree and thinks Jesus is who they need to worship, but he says they haven't slandered. That gives you an, an idea about the, the vibe of Christianity. Not wimpy, but not full of rage and blood boiling all the time. Calm, winsome, explaining, believing, but not being a, not being a jerk, right? We don't have to be jerks. Even the city clerk knows they haven't slandered. Therefore, verse 38, if Demetrius and the craftspeople with him have a charge against anyone, the courts are in session and governors are available. You got a charge and then bring it. If not, get out. Verse 40, as for us, we're in danger of being charged with rioting today since we can't justify this unruly gathering. After he said this, he dismissed the assembly. Those are our two episodes, episode one, episode two. Both events, what do they have in common? How can you know if you have a fruitful Christian life? This is not the only way, but it is a way, it is a metric. Both of these events, the fake exorcists and the riot, happened because when people became Christians, their lives were changed, their behavior changed, their values changed, their hearts changed. The scripture talks about salvation with all these water metaphors. You were washed. You were cleansed. You've been made new. There's an old you and a new you. We're not talking about external changes. When I was a kid, 
we lived in a rented house and the paint was peeling. And my dad told the guy the paint, the house needed to be painted because you can run your hand along the, the, the siding and paint flakes would just fly everywhere. It was like a game. We'd just go run our hands along and huge paint flakes would just go everywhere. My dad told the guy it needed to be painted. The guy came and didn't, didn't scrape the paint off. He just slathered new paint over all the chips. That's not really painting the house. You're just putting a Band-Aid on something. This change in Ephesus, both episodes, are a real change. Not a fake change on the outside. Inside change that produces outward change. When people became Christians, their lives were changed. Their values shifted. Their allegiance shifted. Their life changed. So what they did change, what they believed changed. In other words, they repented, which is a churchy word. What is repentance? Repentance is summed up by Proverbs 28, 13. It means to confess and to forsake. Jesus said, repent and believe the gospel. What does repent mean? To confess something, to be honestly sorry because you know you've done wrong, and then to acknowledge it, right? Do you guys, do any of you get upset when your significant other does something wrong, but he doesn't say he's sorry? What's the point about saying sorry? Why is it so important? Because it matters. It's an acknowledgement. Why do you tell your kids, if you said you're sorry, why? What's it matter? It matters. It's an acknowledgement. I messed up. And I am sorry that I messed up. And when we give fake apologies, we don't like that either. Like, say it like you mean it. Do you really mean it? We know this with our kids, with our spouses, but with God, he knows it too. He knows when it's fake. Confess. Honest sorrow. Acknowledgement. Forsake. Walk away. Try to walk away. Want to walk away. If your kid says, sorry, because he stole the brownies on the kitchen counter, but then goes and steals another one two hours later, he's not sorry. But I said I'm sorry. You're not sorry. Or you would have stopped. That's pretty simple. I'm sorry for doing that, honey. And then the next day it happens again. Are you really sorry? No, you're not sorry. Because if you're sorry, you'd try to change. You wouldn't do it well all the time, but you'd try. Confess and forsake. Confess and forsake. That's what repentance looks like. Proverbs 28, 13 is, Those who hide their sins won't succeed, but those who confess and give them up will receive mercy. Confess, give them up. Confess, give them up. If you hide your sin, you will not succeed. That's what repentance is, an acknowledgement and a commitment to walk away from it. Repent from what? When you, if you become a Christian, you have to make a list of everything you've ever done wrong and systematically say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, for like 50 years. And then if you forget something, is it only halfway good? What are you repenting from? Repentance, when Jesus says repent and believe the gospel, he's not telling you to make a list of everything you've ever done wrong and then make sure you repent for each one in order and check it off. What he's saying is to, in a backing up to a bigger picture, repent from the thing, repent, confess and forsake that you've been relying on something other than God to give definition and shape and purpose to your life. What are you relying on other than God, the God of the Christian scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, to give definition and purpose to your life? 
Now, every Christian knows they should only worship God, but do you really? Do you really? Or is there something else that really has your passion in your heart that you really care about? In Ephesus, it's Artemis worship. That was what had them, whether it was the money that comes from the trade or whether it was really the, they really loved Artemis just because she's an amazing fertility goddess. That, those were the things that had them, had their allegiance, had their passion. You saw the riot screaming and, and angry because Artemis is being threatened. Maybe she's being threatened because Jesus is taking allegiance from them, or maybe she's being threatened because money is what they really love and the money's going away. Maybe it's your career. We had a lady retire from our agency on Thursday, 17 years. 17 years, gave everything for 17 years, and you know how it ended? She carried a box out to her car, she got in her car, and she drove away and left her key card inside on her desk. And that's it. That's it. 17 years, gone. That's it. That's the eternal value of things on this earth. It's not that her job was pointless. It means it doesn't have any eternal significance. So if you're someone who, who, I love Jesus, but your career is really what matters. Your job is really what matters. It's going to end for you one day, just like it did for her. You're going to walk out the door without a key to get back in as soon as it closes behind you for the last time, and you're going to drive away for the last time, and that's it. That's it. And then someone will be hired. To, someone already has been hired to replace her. And people will remember her for a little while, but two years from now, no one will remember. And she'll be a memory. The lady whose office I took, no one even knows who she is anymore. Only I know who she is. And the one guy who's been here longer than me, we're the only two people who even know she existed. Institutional memory is short. And is that worth giving your allegiance to? Repentance, when Jesus says repent and believe the gospel, he says, he means confess and forsake what you've been, anything other than God that you've been relying on to give purpose and definition to your life. And then believe in Jesus is good news as the real hope to give purpose and meaning and shape to your life. What does repentance look like? It means doing, it means action. If you steal another brownie, you're not really sorry. What does repentance look like? Action. They burnt their books. They became believers. But after this incident with these fake exorcists, and they were confronted again with, this is who we've said we worship, but we still have this stuff in the garage we haven't gotten rid of. We say we're done with that, and we're a new person, and we're moving on. And we, we, God has put a new chapter in our life, given us life for the first time, and we're done with that, but why is it still in the garage? At that point, they decided it's time to take this stuff to the dump. And they brought it, they burned their books. There was action. The action wasn't immediate. They were already believers. But there came a time when they had to become serious about repentance. Am I going to do something or not? Am I going to do something or not? The books were burnt. Turning from Artemis to Jesus, Demetrius and his pals wouldn't have been angry if people kept spending their money, but they weren't. Change happened. Internal change in your heart means external change in the way you live your life. And Demetrius knew it. Maybe his profits were going down 5%, maybe 10, maybe more, but he knew it. And it made him angry because he was threatened. 
Repentance looks like action or an honest, ongoing commitment to action. So when you mess up because you will, you get back up and you continue onward instead of being Eeyore and saying, oh, well, I guess it's over. No point continuing on. Ongoing commitment to action. The Lord has changed you. And now he'll give you the strength to change your, your desires will be changed. Your heart is changed. Your life will be slowly changed. Your habits and attitudes will slowly be changed as he makes you into the person who he really made you to be. Changes you from who you are, who you were, into the person he made you to be. What on earth should you do with all of this? What dark corners of your life does your faith not touch, past or present? Is there something you've done in your past, the consequences of which are still lingering over you, that you need to fix, you need to square, you need to apologize for, you need to make, you need to make a reconciliation attempt? Or is there something you're still doing now where your faith, it's sort of compartmentalized in Christianity and Jesus, doesn't, want, doesn't touch that? For whatever reason what is that thing and if you're perfect then you don't need to listen anymore you can go on your phone at this point but for most of us i'm guessing there are things we need to fix in our life the lord's not happy with are we going to decide to do something about it or not that's what we can learn as we read these two accounts how do you know if you have a fruitful christian life repentance ongoing repentance god changes us little by little little by little little by little just like when you grow one summer I grew an inch, I didn't even realize it. But it's up there plain as day, the clothes used to fit me, now they don't. I didn't grow an inch in a night, I grew a tiny little bit every day. And then I was taller all of a sudden, it's amazing how that works. Repentance, change, the Lord changing you and you cooperating with the Lord as well. So, what is the thing in your life? Are you sorry about it? Do you acknowledge that you even do it, or does it, is, it, is it like it never happens? You don't ever confess it to God. You don't ever, admit, you don't ever tell God you're sorry. It's just like, it's like it doesn't happen. It's like you switch off Tyler number one, you switch on Tyler number two, and then you switch off Tyler number two and go back to being a good Christian. Is, that, is there an event like that in your life? Do you, do you, are you sorry for it? Do you confess it? Do you even acknowledge it? And number three, what are you going to do to forsake it? What are you going to do to walk away from it? What are you going to do? Training officer. So this is an entry control. And there's all sorts of countermeasures here to stop a bad guy from coming in the gate. Here, there's only a few. You got one guy checking an ID, and you have this little thing right here that can pop up if he pushes a button. And if he pushes the button in time, uh, the car will smash against the barrier and won't go anywhere. What safeguards do you need to put in your life to stop yourself from doing the thing? What are they? I don't know what they are. What are they? Maybe you need more than a few safeguards. Maybe you need more. Now we have more. We have the guy checking IDs. Now we have a canine dog with the, uh, with, the uh, with the 2005 NEC standing right here with his canine dog. You have a guy with an inspection mirror. You still have the, um, the, the thing that can pop up. And then you have a guy on an overwatch position incorrectly here, ready to shoot the vehicle if it manages to pass there. He's supposed to be like way further down looking at the vehicle, but whatever. 
Okay? Now there's more safeguards. Now it's even harder. That guy with the mirror shouldn't be, he's going he's gonna to die. But anyway, it's florid, he's gone. Maybe you need to do even more. Now this is really, now the gate's closed. And the barrier's still there, and the guy's out there, and this guy is still here on his phone behind the brick pillar. What do you need to do? What steps do you need to put between you and the thing to stop you from doing it? Trip wires. So you can stop and turn and make a decision to walk away. What are you doing to forsake it? Because saying, I'm done with this is nice. Well, what are you going to do to make yourself done with it? What are you going to do so that you won't do those things anymore? If you haven't made any attempt to make this happen so you can forsake it, then you're not really serious. You're just saying words. These people brought their books forward and burnt them. Their life change produced economic hardship for the people who were, for the people in the gift shop, like Demetrius, who were hawking these things. Their society noticed the moral shift, the life shift. They took the exit. I told you I would get to what this picture meant. They took an exit from where they were going and went a different direction. They took exit 109 and they went a different direction. If we're Christians, if we say we're Christians, we need to take an exit from who we used to be and go on God's path so he can remake us into his son's image. What about us? Have we done that? What do we need to do in our lives to make this real, to repent, to show fruit in our Christian life? The title is not meant to be a guilt trip. It's from a funny story, but still, is there fruit in my Christian life? Are you repenting? and continually repenting as God brings things to your mind and changes you. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we come to you today in Jesus' name. Help us to want to be more like your son. Give us comfort when we fall short. Give us grace. Remind us of your mercy and your kindness. Help us not to have a legalistic view of you as a policeman with a billy club ready to strike. Help us just to view you as our Heavenly Father, who we don't want to disappoint, who we want to make, make, us, make proud of us, and help us to want to love you, and through that love, to work on our hearts so we can change and be more like your Son. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.